Okay. Okay, if we're done with the heckling here now, we can <laughs> we can turn to Romans chapter 1. And uh, uh, last week we were looking at verses 16 and 17, which was the tail end of the lesson we started the week before in verse 13. And today we want to pick up with verse 18 and ideally get through the six verses <laughs> that follow verses 18 through 23. But we'll just see... Uh, how far we manage to make it. Uh, well, let's just uh, let's just start by reading the passage, beginning with verse 16, because really, verse 18, although it kind of it really is a transition point, verse 18 is moving from kind of Paul's uh, thesis statement, if you will, that he made in 16 and 17 into his his uh, basic arguments. Uh, the, the, the flow of the argument really begins in verse 16. So let's pick it up in verse 16 and we'll read down through verse 23. And I should add this caveat as well that in some of your translations it may show a paragraph division between 23 and 24. And that's why I'm stopping there. Uh, but in reality, that, that in itself is breaking into the middle of a thought between 23 and 24. So, so uh, his, uh, his thought is is uh, he just the one thing flows right after another. It's very hard to find a place to break. So to some degree, the breaks that I'm making are a bit arbitrary. So, uh, but pick it up in verse 16, and then we'll uh, we'll read starting in 16, and we'll take a minute to think about what we talked about last week and go on with our lesson. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first. And also to the Greek. For in it, that is, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly seen, having been understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Okay? We'll go back to verses 16 and 17 there and look at those verses and kind of uh, prod your memory a little bit. What are some of the things that we talked about last week in verses 16 and 17? Well, one of the things that you, you normally do this review, and last week you didn't do it quite the same way. Because I was wanting to mention something back in verse 13 that, that uh, I thought was very intriguing, and we didn't talk about it last week. Is talking about Paul's plans. Mm -hmm. I was reading one of the commentators and he said, Well, it's obvious from this that Paul's plans were not inspired 
and then he goes on to talk about how we deal with plans and talks about the idea of who hindered him. He said it really doesn't matter. If the spirit wanted him to go there, he would have gone. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so I thought that whole idea was very intriguing and, and uh, would like to talk about that. But uh, there's so many things to talk about. Like well, we will talk about that. Oh, yeah, when we get to chapter 15. Oh, okay. <laughs> so hang on for a couple of years and we'll be there. <laughs> but good. And that's an interesting thought. His plans were not inspired. And that's, uh, that's obvious at several points in Paul's uh, journey. So what else? Or I should say, rather than what else, just what? <laughs> Since we didn't talk about that last week. Why was Paul not ashamed of the gospel? And why, why is he even mentioning that? Because of where he's at. Rome was not the hub of Christianity. Okay. There's a lot going on there. There's a lot of important people. and Sometimes you get caught up with Around is what you say. Okay. 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 What were you going to say, sir? Okay. Okay. As, as we recall from from our earlier studies in our introduction, Paul had obviously intended, really wanted to go to Rome, but he had not gone to Rome, and so the Romans are sitting there wondering, why has this great apostle not come to us? And Paul wanted to make it clear that there were reasons why he had not come. Uh, there were reasons that he had not come. But, but the, that did not include anything that had to do with his fear of how the gospel would fare in Rome. Okay? You have this cosmopolitan, metropolitan uh, city uh, full of the sophisticated and the elite and the powerful uh, and the supposedly wise, uh, great people of the day. And, and uh, the Romans might have thought, well, maybe Paul's just a little afraid to come because he's afraid of how the gospel will fare here. And secondly, as Sarah mentioned, is that factor that Paul is keenly aware that the gospel is foolishness to the Gentiles and a scandal to the Jews. And, but even though he knows that and he faces that every day in his ministry, that is not a factor, he says, in my not coming to Rome. It's not because of the scandal of the cross or the foolishness of the cross that I have not come to Rome. There are other reasons why I have not come. Okay. Um, so he is not ashamed of the gospel. He's not, and the, the fact that the gospel is a scandal to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles is not a hindrance to him. Why is that? Why is he so, in spite of this, reality of the opposition and the resistance and the apparent folly of this message he preached, why is he so committed to it and so eager to preach it? Why isn't he ashamed of it? If everybody else thinks it's such a stupid message, why is Paul not ashamed to stand and be publicly associated with it? Okay, because, because in the gospel is the power of God for what? Salvation. For salvation, yeah. For those who believe. So, Paul's, even though he knows that there will be many out there who scoff and who ridicule and who are scandalized by the message that he preaches, 
that's no deterrent to Paul because he knows that for whoever believes the message, they will be saved. And he has absolute confidence that this message that he preaches, when heard and believed, believes, transforms human lives. Okay? So what is it about the gospel that makes it so powerful? We talked about last week in this passage. Hint, verse 17. Okay? That when the gospel is preached and believed, the righteousness of God is revealed. Okay? Now, we talked at length about that and, uh, and we explored some of the ideas that, that are inherent in this idea of the righteousness of God in the mind of the Jew and particularly in Paul's mind as he discusses the righteousness of God, do you remember what is he really what's in, what's implied or what's what's uh, what is that term loaded with when Paul talks about the righteousness of God? Remember we talked about how Martin Luther was so oppressed by this verse, was so uh, angered by this verse, so much so that he hated God because of what he thought this verse said, and then he discovered that well, no, it really has a far deeper meaning than that. So what, what, what is it that, that Paul's talking about here when he's talking about the righteousness of God? Okay, he couldn't see any way to be righteous. And what he was seeing in the verse, what he was seeing in the reference to righteousness of God was he was seeing uh, a reference to God's ethical or moral nature. Okay? And certainly the term the righteousness of God has that aspect to it. But in Jewish thought, as we saw, particularly from the Psalms and from the prophets, uh, we saw it's really a much more loaded term than that and it has much more meaning to that. And this is what Martin Luther finally discovers. And then he said, as we read his testimony last week, he says that this verse which used to provoke in him this anger and his hatred toward God became for him the gate to heaven. What did Luther discover about the righteousness of God in Genesis 1.17? Okay, okay. One of the things is that in, in the Psalms and in the prophets repeatedly, the idea of God's righteousness and God's salvation are used almost interchangeably. So when Paul is speaking of the righteousness of God being revealed in the Gospel in Romans 1.17, one of the things that's inherent or implied in Paul's term there is the idea of God's saving acts. Okay, so we have a God who is righteous and in his righteousness acts to save those who believe in him. Okay, so it isn't so one of the concepts that's in, that is inherent in the term the righteousness of God as we encounter in Romans is the idea of the saving acts of God. Okay, now there's another aspect, uh, another uh, idea that we get again from the Old Testament and comes out again predominantly in Romans as we move forward uh, that's loaded into this term of the righteousness of God. What is that? First was the saving acts of God and the second aspect is what? It's not describing God. It's who He is. 
Okay. That's not what I'm getting at. That's not what I'm getting at. It's the idea that comes out, out again in, in uh, we'll get it in Romans 3, we'll get it in Romans 10, we'll get it several places in Romans as we go on. Is the idea of what theologians call imputed righteousness. And what we mean by that simply is, and we talked about this last week, you'll recall, is that God looks at a sinner at the bar of justice and the mallet comes down and God says, that sinner is righteous. God renders a verdict of righteousness on a sinful man. Okay, And that is implied. And this was the great discovery that Luther made. That the righteousness of God is not simply his righteousness, his moral, ethical purity, if you will, but it is a, it is a righteousness that is imputed or rendered to man by the decree of God. So as we go forward in the book of Romans and we encounter this idea of the righteousness of God, keep in mind as we go through Romans continually is this idea of God's saving act. When we're speaking of the righteousness of God, we're speaking of God's saving act of declaring sinners righteous. And this was the great discovery that Luther made that transformed his whole view and ultimately transformed his life and ultimately transformed the church and the world is this understanding that the righteousness of God is God's saving act of declaring sinners righteous who believe in Him. And this is why the gospel is powerful unto salvation. Because whoever hears this gospel and believes it experiences the saving work of God in his or her life by being declared by God to be righteous even though they have been up heretofore sinners. Okay? Well, well, yeah, it would be appropriate, but we'll forego that for now. So, so now Paul goes on in verse eighteen, and he 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 launches into an explanation of what he's just said, and to some extent, the next number of chapters, from the middle of chapter uh, one here to the end of chapter 11 is Paul's explanation of what he just said. Okay? And so, the word, uh, the the next verse begins with the word for. Okay? In your English translations. And the idea there is, is, I'm about to explain how all this works. And why all this works. And why all this is necessary. And so he begins now in the middle of chapter 1 and through the middle of chapter 3, he's going to be discussing what we might call mankind's predicament, mankind's situation, why this gospel is necessary and why it is necessary that this gospel be actuated, as we talked about last week, by faith. Faith is the catalyst that ignites the gospel. Faith is the... Faith is the flame put to the fuse that ignites the power of the gospel. Okay? And, and Paul is about to explain to us what it is about man that makes the gospel necessary and makes it necessary that that gospel be actuated by faith and nothing else. 
Okay, so that's what he's going to launch into. And basically, he's going to, for the next couple chapters, up through the middle of chapter 3, he's going to be talking about man in his terrible predicament. And that is that man is a sinner through and through. Not some men, but all men. So beginning here in verse 18 and down through the end of chapter 1, he's going to talk about all men being sinners. They're all sinners. They're all like this. This is the way you are like this. I'm like this. Everybody's like this. The, the sophisticated, elite, upstanding people who walk the streets of our city are like this. And the pagan uh, cannibals of the, of, the most, of the darkest jungles are like this. This is a description of all men. And when we read it, we're going to be inclined to think, well, those are just kind of the wicked, really wicked people are like that. So in chapter 2 and verse 1 and through about the middle of chapter 2, he's going to argue, no, it's not just really wicked people like this, but it's people who think of themselves as good. People who basically are, quote, morally upstanding people, both Jew and Gentile. They also are included in this condemnation. And then uh, at the, in the middle of chapter 2 and on into chapter 3, he's going to argue and it's not just all men and it's not just uh, the morally upstanding person, but the Jew particularly who has the law of God, to whom the law of Moses was given, who knows all this about God, that he also falls under this condemnation. And then he will wrap it up with a grand crescendo that begins early in chapter 3 and goes up uh, to verse 20 of chapter 3 when he will declare, this is what we have found. We have found that all are sinners. Okay? And so that's what we're going to be looking at. And it doesn't sound like it's a very pretty picture that we're going to be considering uh, over the next uh, few weeks as we look at these verses. But this is stuff that we clearly need to understand. And we need to understand it because we need to understand the condition of man without Christ. And that's what he's going to be describing. He's going to be telling us why the gospel is necessary. And remember that the scripture teaches us that he who is forgiven much loves much. And if you want to love God a lot, then we really need to understand these verses. Because then we will understand what we are forgiven for. So this is a description of man before Christ. But as I read these verses, I must confess that it is also a description that I find uncomfortably fits with me, even some now as a believer. And we'll see some of these things as we go forward, uh, hopefully some of them today. So, so this is where Paul is going, hence the word for at the beginning of this verse 18. And he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. And Paul states his thesis here. And his thesis is that, that there is God's wrath is on all men and the reason God's wrath on, is on all men is because they are ungodly and they are unrighteous and they have suppressed the truth about God. And that's the specific truth he's talking about. The truth about God. They have suppressed, they, they have suppressed the truth that he says is within them and that God made evident to them. 
And so his argument is that God is God's wrath is on all men and it is a just wrath because man has willfully suppressed the truth about God. That all men know about God and all men suppress the truth about God. Okay? Then at that point we begin to protest and we say, well, you know, I know about God and some people know about God because we have the Bible and all that sort of thing. And so we, but what about the heathen in Africa, you know, or the heathen in New Guinea, you know, and the people who have never had a missionary come and preach to them? And that's, of course, a question that's often comes up in our minds and is often thrown to us by, uh, by unbelievers. And it's a legitimate question to ask, of course, and it's a question because it's legitimate that the Holy Spirit addresses right here off the, at the outset of Romans chapter 1. And he says, well, the truth is, the truth about God and the knowledge of God has in fact been revealed to all men, and this is how it's been revealed. And he tells us how we know that all men know about God. And he explains that to us then, beginning in verse 20 uh, and down through the first part of 21. But the problem is that even given that knowledge, man has suppressed it. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Man has suppressed that truth. Man resists the truth about God that God has made evident to them and within them. And this triggers a series of events in the mind and the heart of man that results in what I have titled today's lesson, if we get this far, the tragic exchange in which man exchanges the glory of the incorruptible God for the image of a form of corruptible man. Okay? So that's where he's going here in these first verses. And then, uh, and then if you have glanced at your study sheet for next week, if we get that far next week, you'll see that in the verses we look at in the last half of the chapter, Paul is going to talk about three steps in which God gives man over. And these are the natural consequences. Three times that he says God gave them over. These are the natural consequences that occur from these decisions and actions that men have made in their relationship with God. So he begins by introducing us to the wrath of God. And he says it is revealed from heaven. So it's really setting it in contrast to the gospel. In chapter, uh, or in verses 17 and 18, we read about the gospel in which the righteousness of God is revealed. Now we're going to learn about the wrath of God, which is revealed, but it's not so much revealed in the gospel, although preaching the gospel necessitates talking about the wrath of God. But the wrath of God, in contrast to the righteousness of God, which is revealed in the gospel, the wrath of God is revealed how? Where? From where? From heaven, okay? So this is something that that uh, that uh, is 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 revealed not so much in the gospel itself, but is all around us. It's a revelation that comes from heaven. Okay. Now, this whole idea of the wrath of God makes people uncomfortable. Okay. It's it's always uncomfortable to feel like you're on the receiving end of somebody's wrath, right? When when your wife's mad at you, your husband's mad at you, your kids are mad at you, your parents are mad at you, it's always uncomfortable, right? But when someone's mad at us, we don't usually just deny that they're mad at us. We try and find some other way of dealing with it. But when God's mad at us, we're t- we, we're, or God's, when we have God's uh, wrath on us, uh, the tendency is just to deny the wrath of God. And so there is a tendency, even with some believers, to deny the concept of God's personal wrath. And so, 
there's a tendency to kind of explain the wrath away as well. It's, it's really not God's personal wrath towards sinners, but it's just the it's just kind of the natural consequences of man going contrary to to nature and contrary to creation. And so there are natural consequences of that. Kind of like jumping off a cliff and gravity, you know, pulling you to the ground and destroying you. Well, that's just the natural consequence. And we might think of that as an illustration of the wrath of God. But Scripture teaches quite clearly, I believe, that God's wrath is personal. It's not just kind of the forces of nature out there at work. But God's wrath is personal. But why, why would we be so inclined, so disinclined? I mean, apart from what I just mentioned, that we're on the receiving end of it. But why would we be disinclined to believe in a personal wrath in reference to God? How do we, how do we view wrath? What, what is our experience with wrath? Okay, and why does it appear reckless? Where do we usually see it? Pardon? Okay, okay, because where, where is it reckless? When, when is it reckless? Okay, okay. Our problem with the idea of wrath is that largely our idea of wrath is shaped by what we see around us when people are... Yeah. Okay, okay. Okay, and and once again, that's because of of seeing it in in people, right? We see wrath in people, and and we equate the the wrath of people, or what's typically people's wrath, with the wrath of God, and that's why we recoil at the idea of God having wrath. Okay, so so typically, not always. Sometimes there is a just human wrath or a righteous human wrath, but typically, man's wrath is a rage, it's out of control, it's, it's strictly emotional, it's irrational, it's, uh, it's oftentimes overboard, it is frequently unjust. You know, I was sitting at the bank yesterday, I, I had actually uh, plenty of time on my hands and I pulled into the drive-thru at the Westside Bank uh, to cash a check. And uh, so I put the check in the you know, up it goes. Uh, I'm learning to do the sound effects like you do, Chuck. Uh, so, so it goes. Uh, you had to be at the party last night. Uh, but uh, so it goes shooting up, and 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 then I'm sitting there, and there's one other car in a you know in a four bay drive through. There's one other vehicle, and I sit there, and I sit there, and I sit there, and I sit there. Oh, did I mention I sit there? Okay. Well, I'm starting to get mad. Now, I don't have any place I have to be immediately. You know, but after a while, I'm thinking, I'm just going to push that intercom button, tell them to send my check back. I'll go to another branch. I don't have to sit here and put up with this. Pardon? <laughs> really? So, I'm sitting there, and I'm just getting angrier and angrier. And meanwhile... I'm going, I have no reason to be angry. This is no inconvenience to me. I, I have my notes right here. I can sit here and study my notes about the wrath of God. So, I can sit here and study my notes. You see, my anger was unjust. And it was self-centered. Okay, That's the anger, typically the anger of man. But God's anger is not like that. 
another aspect of that that you just demonstrated was a blocked goal. Your goal was to be done, and they blocked it. And mm-hmm. you're angry. Yeah. And so we think God's anger must be the same. Yeah. Yeah. A blocked goal. Yeah. But that's not, yeah. That's yeah. Not just for the record, our bank doesn't sound like that. <laughs> uh, you probably have a more dignified sounding bank than I do, yeah, I'm sure. Well, uh, so, so what we find out about God's wrath is it is a personal wrath. But it's a perfectly measured wrath. It's never unjust. It's never capricious or arbitrary. And it's always perfectly righteous. It's always justified in light of the circumstances. And I'm particularly intrigued by the idea that it is measured. Because what we're going to discover as we look at Paul's description of God's wrath here in these verses today and in the verses we're going to look at next week, what tense are they in? What tense is it in? It's in the present tense. Now, when we think of the wrath of God, typically what do we think of? We think of the future. We think of God's judgment. We think of the stuff Ronnie's been talking about in Revelation, right? We think about all this stuff that's what this ultimate wrath of God. But what we're going to discover here is Paul doesn't even bring up the future wrath of God. He doesn't even mention it. It's not even an issue to him right here. What's at issue to him right now is the present revelation of the wrath of God. It's being revealed right now. Well, that tells us something about the wrath of God. It tells us that the wrath of God is measured. Because when we get to Revelation, we're going to see a much greater scale of of God's wrath, right? When we get to the end time, when we get to the final judgment, and we get to the day of the Lord, we're going to see a highly escalated wrath. We don't see that now. So, the, so it's very clear that God's wrath, which is revealed presently, and it's all around us if we would just open our eyes and look at it, and this is what we're going to be doing, is limited. It's restrained. And in fact, there's something else that's interesting that will come out as we study the wrath of God at this stage, this present wrath of God is that the wrath of God is not so much God's intervention in human affairs, but His present wrath is His refusal to intervene in human affairs. And Rick, when you talk about that, one of the things we prayed about even this morning, the wildfires, Mm -hmm. did you hear preachers all over the scale, all over the spectrum, God causes He's punishing these people and the the flood in New Orleans is punishing and this and that. So this is part of what you're talking about. Yeah. Not punishment, but a measured... Yes. Well, yeah. I'll let you say what you're saying. Yeah. Anyway. Well, yeah, that's a good point. And, uh, and this is not to deny that at certain points in history, God has intervened and specifically punished. For example, the children of Israel being carried into captivity. Okay, that was not God withholding intervention. That was God's actual intervention. Okay, but. But generally speaking, the present wrath of God that is revealed, that we're going to be looking at, is a, is a wrath that is exhibited by God's refusal to intervene. God's refusal to prevent the consequences 
of what we did and the decisions we made and the things that we thought and the things that we said from having their natural consequence. And God withholds himself and allows those things to go forward. And that's what we're going to see. So it's a present wrath. It's a personal wrath. And it's a wrath that is against two things particularly. The ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. And he uses two terms there. The first one, the idea of, of ungodliness. And it's, and it's basically the negation of a positive term. In English, we negate it with the use of the prefix un, ungodliness. Okay, So that gives us a clue as to what he's talking about. What he's talking about is there's something about man in his interaction or relationship with God, in the way his relationship with God ought to be, and man does not do that. He lives contrary to that. The root word, uh, the root Greek word there, which is negated by the Greek uh, uh, letter alpha, the, the root Greek word there really means to worship. So, in one sense, we could translate this. It wouldn't be a very good translation, but in one sense, we could translate it, I refuse to worship or I do not worship. So God's wrath is revealed from heaven against those who do not worship, who do not respond and relate to God the way they ought to relate to God. And God's wrath is revealed to, against men who are also unrighteous. And this is a broader term that just has the idea of not living rightly, not living according to the moral or the ethical uh, standards of what's, what's, uh, what's proper. Okay? So, so, in one sense, we have kind of Paul's... Uh, in one sense, this is kind of parallel to uh, the, the breakdown of the division that we see in the Decalogue in the Ten Commandments. Remember, in the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments have to do with our relationship with God, and the last six commandments have to do with our relationship with men. Okay? Well, in one sense, that's kind of what Paul is talking about here. What he's saying is God's wrath is revealed for those against those who have broken all of the Ten Commandments, which is all of us. We have all refused to relate to God and, 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 and not related to God in the way we should have, and we have all lived contrary to the right way that we ought to live with one another. And God's wrath is revealed from heaven against that. Now, this is kind of a chicken or the egg thing. And... Uh, and I know Jim thinks he knows which came first, but 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 uh, <laughs> but this is kind of a chicken or the egg thing. Did the ungodliness and the righteousness come before the suppression, or did the suppression come before the ungodliness and the righteousness? And I don't think Paul makes that clear, and I don't think it's really an issue. But what Paul is going to focus on here is is this whole idea of the suppression of truth, and this is what he's going to focus on. And so one of the things that's characteristic of all men is that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And the idea of suppression there is the idea that something is being held. Something is being restricted. Something's being held back. And so the picture we get here is that God's wrath is revealed against men who have the truth but are suppressing the truth. Or at least they have had the truth and have suppressed the truth. And as I read the passage, and 
and and read the rest of Romans and the things that Paul says in other places in Romans, it seems to me that what Paul is implying here is not only that man had that truth and suppressed it, but that he continues to harbor deep within his inner being that there is a God and what that God is like. But that he continues to suppress it. Now, there are many, many people, and you know them and I know them as well, there are many people for whom the whole thought that there is a God is so suppressed that it's as if they have no knowledge of him at all. But I think the way Paul puts it here when he talks about the fact that they have suppressed the knowledge of God is that it's still down there. It's still down there, hidden away in the darkness of their being. The knowledge of God is there, but it is being suppressed and it has been so thoroughly suppressed that for some, that knowledge seems almost non-existent. But there are many others for whom the knowledge has been suppressed, but not, not so suppressed that there's still some idea of God, but it's become such a perverted and distorted idea of God that it's completely different than the God revealed in Scripture. That's what he talks about in the last verse we looked at there, who exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the, for the image of a form of corruptible man, etc. That they still have an idea of God, but they have so perverted it and distorted it. Okay, so, so man has suppressed this truth in unrighteousness. And then he goes on to say in verse 19, because the reason he said verse, what he said in verse 18 is because of what man did, which he describes now in verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. And so we discover, it's kind of interesting here, and some of your translations don't pick this up, but the idea is that this knowledge of God is within man. It's not just to man. It's not just a kind of an external revelation that they just saw, but it's actually internalized. It's within him. Now, I... I don't conclude that man is born with this knowledge of God. Because he says he revealed it, and then he tells us how he revealed it. So it's as man looks about him, he sees something that reveals to him God, and it goes deep within his being. So that he has this knowledge of God within him, and it's not an accident. How did he get it? How did he get it? Verse 19. (laughs) You're jumping the gun. How did he get it? God revealed it. it. Okay. So this is not just an accident of birth (laughs) that we have this knowledge of God. But that God has purposely, consciously, intentionally revealed himself to all men to such an extent that the knowledge of God is no longer just kind of an external thing out there that I kind of, but it's an actually an internal thing. There's something deep inside of me that knows about God. And that has been placed there by God. Now, I have problems, as I'm sure you have problems, with the whole issue of what about the heathen. But this addresses that in large measure. God has revealed himself 
to all men. God has not left himself, Paul says, without a witness. He has established a witness of himself that all men can see and all men can understand what is that witness. <laughs> the creation. Exactly. That that revelation of God is in creation. Since, he says, the beginning. That since the beginning of the world, since, uh, since the creation itself, he says, God's invisible attributes have been clearly seen. It's not cloudy. It's not obscure. It's not vague. It's clearly seen. God's invisible attributes. Now, here's a remarkable thing. God is a spirit. He's not visible. He's not tangible. He's a spirit. God is a spirit. Those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. But when God decided that He wanted to do this whole creation thing, He created a material universe. And within this material universe, He created the pinnacle of His creation, material man, you and I. We've got bodies we can touch, we can feel, we can smell, we can hear. It's all material, right? And then we have the Spirit joined with that, okay? So we have this spiritual material being. But, but our perceptions are largely natural and material, right? And so here's God up here and He's completely invisible. And here are us down here and, you know, we are so physical that the physical kind of is just so loud it drowns out the spiritual. So it's very hard for us to perceive things spiritually. So we tend to just perceive things physically or materially. And so here is the invisible God up here and He wants all His material, physical creation down here to be able to know about Him, but He knows that we can't see Him. And we can't hear Him. And we can't touch Him. But He wants us to know about Him. So what does He do? Okay, He gives us signs that tell us about Him. And what are those signs? He creates things that we cannot create. Okay, He, he created the world. He created the world and He put us in that created world. And we look all around and when we look at the creation, we see the invisible attributes of God, His eternal power and His divine nature. So as we look at creation, there are some things that we can know about God. Now, there are some things we can't know. And so theologians talk about two levels of revelation of God. They talk about general revelation and special revelation. And general revelation is what we're talking about today. General revelation is the, the revelation of God in creation. And it's general in a couple senses at least. It's general in that it's a revelation that goes to all men everywhere simultaneously. Everybody has it. Everybody has access to this general revelation. It's also general in the sense that it tells us some general things about God. 
But there are some specific or special things about God that it does not tell us. And for those things, we need special revelation. And so we get a special, we also have special revelation. And general revelation is a revelation of God to all men everywhere in creation. Special revelation is God's specific, particular revelation of specific, particular things about Himself to specific, particular people at at a particular time in history, i.e., the prophets. So that God, through the prophets and through the scriptures, has revealed things about Himself that we cannot know any other way, i.e., the plan of salvation. But what Paul is talking about here is general revelation. And what he's saying about, about general revelation is that it's, it is available and accessible to everybody because it comes to us in the form of God's creation. Well, some of us do, but <laughs> <laughs> Ginger's over here going, yeah. <laughs> yeah, really. Yes, and so that is, that's the point. That in creation we see certain things about God that are just obvious. And one of those things is His eternal power. Two things at play there. One, His, his incredible, unimaginable power. And the second thing is, is that it's eternal. And by eternal we don't mean lasting forever from this point forward, but that it never had a beginning and never had an end. That's obvious in creation. Oh yeah. You know, an ultimate suppression of the very thing that's supposed to draw men to Christ. Yeah. Now there's an explanation that's being taught and forced down people to deny that. Yeah. The very thing shows his evidence. Well, now, you know, you don't believe that. But yeah. Just a very powerful feudal statement that is. Yeah, and that's what Paul gets to here is the, is the feudal speculations and the darkening of the heart. And we'll, and we'll get to that at some point. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, so God's eternal power is demonstrated and his divine nature. And this includes some of the things like like uh, Milford was just mentioning there, uh, things like his orderliness and and his uh, and the laws of nature, uh, God's wisdom, God's goodness, uh, God's personality, that his personhood. These are all things that are revealed in nature. These are things that mankind, if he just stops and looks around at creation and, and thinks clearly and openly without suppressing the truth, he will discover these things about God. Now, he won't discover about the Messiah and the coming of the Christ and the provision of salvation through grace. Uh, you know, those are things we need special revelation for. But he will discover these numerous aspects about God, His eternal power and His divine nature. He says they are clearly seen. 
I tend to think they're kind of obscured. I think about the, 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 the heathen person who has not been exposed to the gospel of Christ or the preaching of the cross, and I think, well, he's out there and all he's got is creation, and it's just not very much. But that's clearly not Paul's opinion, is it? Paul thinks this is a remarkable display. But into those people in the dark jungle, they wind up having God. That's right. And others. That's right. That's right. That's right. And so, uh, I've been I've been watching, uh, uh, pulling up. Uh, uh, we've got uh, there's a book written by two guys by the name of Richards and Gonzalez, entitled "The Privileged Planet." I don't know how many of you are familiar with it. But there's a corresponding DVD that goes with it. We have the DVD. And it talks about some remarkable things about the creation and about, uh, about the universe we live in. And one of the things that they emphasize is, is how this earth that we live on, this planet, is just so unique, so privileged, uh, that, that, that there's, just, there's very likely no other place in the universe uh, that is suitable for complex life of the nature that we have on the earth and they go through all these different parameters of things that are necessary for us to have complex life but then they go on in the second part I've not read the book but I've watched the DVD and in the second part of the DVD they talk about the other aspect about this uniqueness of the earth that's so incredible is that is that there are so many aspects or or features of of the earth itself um let me find a quote here uh, of the earth itself and 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 the way it's made that not only makes it suitable for us to live, but it makes it suitable for us to discover. So at one point, uh, Richard says on the DVD, he says the nature of our planet, the nature of its atmosphere, the location in the solar system, the type of solar system that it's in the type of star we're around, the location in the galaxy are optimal for making scientific discoveries. So this is a a little list of some of the things they've discovered that optimize our ability to make scientific discoveries. And so Gonzalez, the co-author, says, it seems that whatever the source of the universe is, it intended that it contain observers who discover. Quite clearly, God intends for us to discover him. For example, the relationship of the moon, the size of the moon, to the size of the sun and their comparative distance from the Earth. Uh, the size of the moon is pretty important just to make life, vis- life possible on Earth, okay? The size and its proximity to the Earth. But, but you're all familiar with the concept of a total, total solar eclipse, right? Where the moon comes in front of the sun and blocks out the sun, right? Okay. Have you ever seen one? Has anybody ever seen one? Okay. What does it look like? If you're actually looking at it through a lens, what does it look like? Pardon? A, a ring of fire. You have the moon right here, and behind the moon, you just see a very little glimpse of the outer atmosphere of the sun. 
Now, if the moon was a little larger, what would you see? Nothing. If it was a little, little smaller, what would you see? A lot of bright light. And you couldn't see this perimeter. You couldn't distinguish it, right? If it was a little closer to the earth, what would happen? It'd be bigger and blocked. If it was a little further away, what would happen? Once again, it'd be like it were smaller. And so, but because it is located exactly the way it is located, we have been able to look at the outer perimeter of the sun and also look at some planets just around the corner. And we have made all kinds of dramatic discoveries about the world and the universe we live in because the, the moon is not only the exact size that it is in relationship to the sun, but in the exact place it is in relationship to the sun. And that's just one example of the kind of things that scientists encounter every day that have to be just so, not only for us to live here on this planet, but for us to discover and see out into the universe. God clearly has things He wants us to see. God has revealed to us Himself. And, and so, uh, so Paul says that it's in the creation that these things have been revealed. It's in creation that God has shown these things. And it's very clear, he says. He says they have been clearly seen being understood. They have been understood through what has been made, he says, so that what? They are without excuse. There is no man that can say, God, I didn't know about you. Nobody can say that. Because God has revealed Himself to all men through, through the general creation. And, and to anyone who was willing to contemplate honestly what they saw in creation, they would have discovered His eternal power and His divine attributes. They are clearly seen. Now, uh, now, admittedly, it doesn't seem to us they're clearly seen, but there's a reason why it doesn't seem to us they're clearly seen, which is what Paul addresses in the next verses. But they are clearly seen By all men. And I go, well, when did this happen? Well, I don't necessarily assume, because of the way Paul said it here, I don't necessarily assume that I was born this way. Because he doesn't say I was born with this knowledge. He says God revealed it to me. So there was some point when I was a little crumb crutcher or whatever, when I looked around the world around me and I started getting these ideas about a God. And then comes the turning point. Because there was some point in my life and in your life when however young we were and we were looking around and we started getting these ideas about God and then something happened. And I was thinking about the responsibility of a parent. Or the responsibility of a grandparent. I am now. Because we have these little children around us. And they are in those formative stages where they are beginning to see the revelation of the eternal power and divine nature of God. 
And our responsibility as parents and our responsibility as grandparents is to help them see that revelation. But so oftentimes parents, instead of helping to explain and explicate that revelation, we stand in the way of it. We obstruct it. Or we discourage them reaching the right conclusions from it. And I'm reminded of what Jesus says, that he who causes one of these little ones to stumble should have a millstone. He'd be better if a millstone were tied around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. Is that, is that my? Is, is that tell me I'm done or what? Yes and no. Yes and no. I, I would say no in this sense. But I think what Paul is saying here is that all men are without excuse. So even though I may grow up in a culture in which that knowledge has been suppressed, there was a point in my life in which I suppressed it myself personally. Yes. So I make a choice. And, and so, so he says then, for even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation and their foolish heart was darkened. So there, there is a point in every person's life where there is some knowledge of God observed at least through the creation, through the general revelation, if not also for many of us through special revelation that we hear as little children. But at that point, we begin to suppress the truth. And the way we suppress the truth is we do not honor God as God or give thanks. And I just want to illustrate it this way. Consider Eve in the garden. She is confronted by the serpent and she is offered the fruit. And she is tempted. The two things that Eve did that were fatal to her, to her husband, and to us are that she did not honor God as God or give thanks. She listened to the serpent and embraced the idea that God was deceptive and malicious. And the moment she did that, she suppressed her knowledge of God. The other thing that she did not do was she did not get down on her knees and thank God that He had commanded her not to eat of the fruit of the tree. She did not thank God for God's restrictions and limitations on her life. And because she did not honor God as God or give thanks, she became futile in her speculation and her foolish heart was darkened. And so we have this ongoing phenomena that happens not only in the life of Eve and the life of Adam, but in every one of our lives as well. 
that we have this knowledge of God, but we begin to suppress it and we fail to honor God as God and we fail to give him thanks. And the result is that our speculations become futile and our foolish heart is darkened. He says their speculations were futile. See, you have all this data. And all this data says there is a God and this is what this God is like. But I can't have that. The one thing I cannot allow is the idea that there is a God who is like this. So I make an arbitrary decision that I will preclude this as a possible conclusion from the data that I have. It's like the naturalist, uh, going back to the point Mike was making. It's like the naturalist who says, we cannot admit to design. So we will preclude the idea of design from one of our conclusions. That's one conclusion we cannot reach because that runs contrary to naturalism. And so we preclude that. So we've said, We'll take all the data, but we won't let the data lead us wherever it leads us. We'll let the data lead us wherever it leads us as long as it doesn't lead us here. This conclusion we exclude as a possibility. We cannot do that. So with all this data out here, one of the things I cannot conclude is that there is a God like the Bible describes. I preclude that. I say, okay, that's out, that's out of limit. Okay, so now I have all this data what do I do with it? Well, I speculate. I start making up ideas. I start coming up with crazy ideas. But all my speculation is what? Futile. Why is it futile? Because I have told the daddy it cannot lead me over here to the true and living God. So my speculations become futile. Does this not, does this not sound like our world today? Not just in the field of science, but in the field of morals, in the field of theology, and, you know, in the field of politics, over and over and over and over again. We have precluded the truth. And we will only let the data lead us somewhere else, and our speculations have become foolish. Well, we do that sometimes too. But something even far more sinister than that has happened, that our speculations have become futile, and that is that our foolish heart has become darkened. You see, because the heart in Scripture, you know, we think of the heart and we just think gooey, mushy love stuff, right? Okay. But in heart in Scripture, it's kind of the core of the human being. It's the center of his intellect, his will, his emotions. It's, it's the very core of the being. And it is, as one uh, theologian says, it's that core of his being that is particularly responsible to God. And so our very core of our being, our intellect, our will, our emotions, the, 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 the very core of us has had settled upon it this deathly darkness. So our emotions, our will, our intellect, everything about us has been shrouded in darkness. What will happen? We are completely darkened. Now, down there somewhere deep inside, I believe, and I think Paul is saying so, is still that knowledge of God, but it is darkened. 
how will that darkness how will that darkness be lifted? There's only one way that darkness can be lifted, and that is through the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. But Paul tells us in Corinthians that Satan is working night and day to prevent the light of the gospel from being shed abroad in hearts that have been darkened because of their foolish choice. But it is the gospel and the gospel alone which will lift that darkness which has descended upon my heart because of my choice to suppress the truth about God. Well, next week, let's pick it up right here in verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And we'll go on and we'll go into the passage that you have a study sheet for next week.